Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello and welcome. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this educational podcast, Heart Disease in Women, Risk, Prevalence, and Diagnosis by Elite Learning. Joining us is our subject matter expert, Dr. Joshua Weinstock. Uh, Dr. Weinstock graduated from Cornell University, after which he studied bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania before attending medical school as a member of the charter class of Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. During medical school, he served as a national leader of the American Medical Student Association and served multiple terms on the organization's board of trustees. After medical school, he completed an internal medicine residency at Cooper University Hospital, where he was awarded Resident of the Year in 2019 and served as a chief resident in 2020. He subsequently stayed on for cardiology fellowship training at Cooper. He has published research projects investigating cholesterol-lowering medication and another studying implantable cardiac monitors for detection of arrhythmia, presenting his findings at the Heart Rhythm Society National Meeting. Dr. Weinstock plans to work in the Philadelphia suburbs as a cardiologist, where he will continue to focus on cardiovascular disease management and prevention. Welcome, Dr. Weinstock. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored to be here today. Thank you. Before we dig deep into issues specifically related to women, can you tell our listeners exactly what coronary artery disease is? Sure. So coronary artery disease is, you know, one of the um, major uh, diseases that kind of uh, affects many in our population. Um, it refers to um, atherosclerotic buildup of a cholesterol within the heart arteries as we age. And um, as we get older, the uh, arteries build up with uh, cholesterol deposits, atherosclerosis. And eventually, you know, when that progresses enough, it can cause symptoms and very deleterious uh, effects down the road, things like heart attacks. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes in the healthcare setting, we're seeing patients presenting with, um, you know, either the symptoms or the unfortunate consequences of coronary artery disease. And uh, how does someone with coronary artery, artery disease present in the clinical setting? So the classic presentation, uh, if you will, or the, you know, the typical symptoms that we oftentimes hear about or see dramatized on TV or, you know, the substernal, you know, center of the chest pain um, that... Uh, we, when we refer to typical chest pain, we're really referring to that kind of central chest pain, substernal discomfort that's brought on, provoked by exertion or other uh, physical or emotional stress can also bring it on. Um, and that typical chest pain is typically relieved by rest or medications such as nitroglycerin. Um, so when we talk about kind of the classic presentation, we're really referring to you know the typical chest discomfort that many people report. Um, however, not everybody that is suffering from coronary artery disease or the, um, you know, the uh, consequences of coronary artery disease, like a heart attack, for example, um, develops those same symptoms. And in fact, many people present with a somewhat atypical symptoms, which I'm sure we'll touch on. 
Yes. Okay, great. And uh, sometimes it's, I just wanted to differentiate before we move any further about angina. So can you tell us what the difference is between stable angina and unstable angina? So angina is that kind of typical discomfort that I just mentioned. So it has those, typically has those three features, meaning it's substernal mid-chest pain provoked by exertion um, or other emotional stress, um, better with rest, better with medicines like nitroglycerin. Um, that's what we you know, refer to when we're discussing angina. And it, that angina is caused by basically inadequate oxygen delivery to the uh, heart cells, the myocardium. And when the myocardium is kind of starved of that blood supply due to the buildup um, uh, within the coronary arteries, patients develop symptoms like angina. It becomes very worrisome when they present with uh, um, symptoms of angina that are, you know, um, not relieved by the traditional measures, things like medications like nitroglycerin um, or by rest. And when that when it gets to that point, we refer to them as uh, having unstable angina. And unstable angina actually falls under the kind of same umbrella as uh, what many would consider to be, you know, the the heart attack or the, the, the STEMI or the non-STEMI. We call those acute coronary syndromes when their patients develop acute discomfort, you know, typically chest discomfort, and have end, evidence of end organ damage uh, to their heart. We kind of place them in certain buckets. Uh, acute coronary syndrome is an umbrella term, but we further um, define acute coronary syndromes typically by the features um, that are seen on EKG and sometimes um, other things. So the, the, many people have heard of STEMI and that's kind of the classic uh -huh. heart attack you hear of ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction. That's typically the, you know, the more serious presentation we see where it's, it's, it's acute, it, time is of the essence and they're somewhat easier to identify because when you see patients presenting like that and with evidence of ST segment elevation on their EKG, we very quickly act. The other kind of acute coronary syndrome is what we refer to as non-ST segment acute elevation acute coronary syndrome or N-S-T-E-A-C-S or N-STEMI is what many people refer to it as. That's where there may be signs of ischemia or inadequate blood supply to the heart on an EKG, but they're not showing that classic ST segment elevation that many of us are trained to identify. Um, However, NSTEMI is defined by elevated cardiac biomarkers. And when I say that, I'm really referring to troponin, which is oftentimes checked in a healthcare setting. Um, and when we see elevated troponins, that's generally a bad sign. And it shows that there is, you know, uh, damage to the heart muscle itself. And so when you couple EKG changes that are not elevations with elevated cardiac biomarker, like elevated troponin, that is kind of what we refer to as an NSTEMI or non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome. But going back to your original question of stable versus unstable angina, unstable angina itself actually is distinct from STEMI and NSTEMI, but also worrisome and also treated similarly, where these patients, when they're declared unstable, meaning we they're having the typical symptoms, they may have risk factors for coronary artery disease, and their pain is not relieved in the traditional sense, in the typical sense rather, those patients also, you know, are treated more urgently um, and managed kind of similarly to the way you would uh, patients presenting with NSTEMI or STEMI. Um, Got it. 
when we talk about stable angina, like I said from, from the start when you initially asked the question, stable angina is more predictable. So there are many patients that we can manage who have you know, known coronary artery disease uh, that we see in the office and are labeled as what we call chronic stable angina, meaning they do get chest pain from time to time and it's predictable. They are able to mitigate that chest pain with their medic with the use of medications, so things like long-acting nitrates and other medications to prevent the angina or to suppress it. And when it's suppressed in that predictable manner and more of a, a stable state, we call that chronic stable angina. So going back to your original question of kind of defining stable versus unstable angina, th those are the way that's the way I generally think about it. Um, unstable angina, very worrisome. Stable angina, not good, um, right. but can be managed chronically. And typically, you know, uh, with uh, cardiology providers, you know, we can manage that with medications in our, you know, at our disposal. Excellent. Great answer. Okay. Now let's talk about how women different from men when it comes to heart disease. Do we present differently as well? So the interesting thing is that um, some people may have heard that women present entirely differently. And while some of that may be true, it's actually most common that women will present with chest pain like their male counterparts most commonly present. So I don't want to um, paint a picture that women don't get chest pain because many do, but sure. some don't. And so there are some other, you know, more common symptoms of, um, of heart disease that people generally don't want to ignore. So some people develop dyspnea, shortness of breath, um, particularly when it's exertional in nature, um, unusual fatigue. Um, overwhelming fatigue can often can can be a symptom of um, coronary disease. Um, some patients develop pain in their neck or jaw. You'll oftentimes hear pain running down the arm. Um, so, so many you know some women will will have those symptoms. Um, and then you know also we've seen we do see patients presenting with GI symptoms, so things like nausea, vomiting. Um, sometimes patients ignore their symptoms because they think, oh, you know, it's just indigestion or something when in fact, you know, it could be an acute coronary syndrome and it could be, you know, that, um, something more serious than just indigestion. I've also heard of a silent, um, episode. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. So it's actually interesting. Sometimes we catch what we call silent myocardial infarctions or silent heart attacks and, um, yeah, that can be for a number of reasons, but sometimes patients will get an EKG and it'll show evidence of perhaps an old heart attack, maybe Q waves on an EKG, or, you know, they'll have a, uh, you know, an, a nuclear stress or something that shows an old area of infarction. And we do know that some people, for whatever reason, don't develop symptoms and may not, may have an episode that goes missed for a number huh. of reasons, uh, particularly actually in, in diabetic patients uh, who, yeah. as we know, develop neuropathy in all parts of the body. So patients with Uncontrolled diabetes, unfortunately, many times will develop neuro peripheral neuropathies, but you can also develop uh, neuropathies that affect the innervation of the heart. And so um, that may be the case for some of these silent you know, myocardial infarctions. Um, so I guess the point of having this discussion is basically to say that, you know, while some patients present with the classic heart attack that, you know, is dropped, like I said, we see on TV where patients have that, you know, crushing chest pain in the, in the central of the chest. Some patients don't have any symptoms and some people have very, you know, so to speak, atypical symptoms. So we always, when we're evaluating patients, need to have an antenna raised, you know, to think about coronary disease as even when patients present in a somewhat atypical manner. Got it. Okay. And is it true that women are generally older than men when we uh, present with symptoms or have this 
come on to come on for us? Yeah. So in general, um, you know, the way it's taught is that women in general present about 10 years later than their male counterparts. Wow. And the reasons for that um, are interesting. So women um, unique to men have some degree of hormonal protection from progression yes. of coronary or development and progression of coronary disease uh, from estrogen. So women who are of childbearing age are protected a little bit by the estrogen that they that they have. Estrogen itself is a hormone that does a lot of things to the body. Um, some of which, you know, do affect vascular tone and pliability of the vasculature. Estrogen affects lipid metabolism and other things. And so as women um, are going through their childbearing age years, they have, uh, they are offered some protection from, uh, you know, from the, the hormones throughout the body. As they enter menopause and the postmenopausal periods, that protection actually can, can go away. And it's uh, during those years where women tend to catch up to their male counterparts and um you know are, are at further risk for coronary disease so in general women we refer to um premature coronary artery disease is kind of defined as um somebody who has a a relative who um a male relative who develops coronary artery disease before the age of 55. Ah. but for females it's a little bit different in the sense that coronary disease is considered premature um, when it's before the age of 65. So there's a, like a, about a 10-year gap there where uh, women eventually catch up to men. But um, so early on, there's some degree of protection. But overall, the burden of cardiovascular disease, particularly later in life, is is high for both men and women. Got it. So would this speak positively in favor of estrogen replacement therapy? So that's that's a good question you ask. So the logical thought would be, well, if we were to give estrogen, you know, uh, replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy to women, would we be able to kind of stave off that? And this has actually been studied. Um, there have been some initiatives to study this in the past. And what they found is that um, the, it was kind of a mixed bag in terms of the outcomes of giving replacement therapy. So what they found actually, uh, I believe the women's uh, health initiative studies uh, studied this. And what they found was that the incidence of things like myocardial infarction and stroke actually went up for a certain uh, uh, portion of the population who received hormone replacement therapy. Interesting. Um, and when they further looked at that data, it tended to be people who were later on in the, in the postmenopausal years as opposed to the early uh, postmenopausal years. Um, but we also know that hormone replacement therapy affects not just the cardiovascular system, but the body in general. And we know that the incidence of things, um, you know, like, like stroke, but also venous thromboembolism can go up. And so, um, as you know, cardiology providers, we do not in general, uh, you know, routinely suggest that hormone replacement therapy is the answer here at all. Right. Um, you know, there, there are indications for hormone replacement therapy, but at, for coronary artery disease, that's not something that is routinely done. Got uh, it. By any means. Got yeah. it. Let's talk family history. What is, how does that play sure. into they? So family history uh, plays a big role, uh, unfortunately, because there's a lot of risk factors that, you know, we can change and ways we can uh, minimize or lower our risk. Genetics, unfortunately, we can't change. Um, so we know that patients who are predisposed to coronary disease need to be a little bit more cautious. Now, 
almost everybody can identify somebody in their family who's probably had coronary disease or had a, an MI, things like that, because it's so common. Um, it really affects us, uh, you know, be hard pressed to find anybody who wasn't affected by this disease in some way, shape or form, be it, uh, you know, a close relative or sure. friend. Um, but what, like I said before, what is worrisome is when it's in a relative at a premature stage wow. in life. And so again, what's considered premature is a man before the age of 55 uh, and a woman before the age of 65. So let's say somebody had a family history of, you know, a father having an MI at age 40 or a mother having an age MI at age 50. That would be very concerning. And that would be somebody who would want to, you know, do whatever they can to minimize the risk, uh, you know, and and try and work on all the modifiable risk factors that they can to try and, you know, and, and minimize their their risk. We like I said, unfortunately we can't can't change the family history. We can't change our genes, but um, we can work on other ways to lower our risk. And what are some of the modifiable, modifiable risks for women? Well, for either, but women it would be the sure. same, I guess. Sure. So the, actually, um, there are a lot of modifiable risks. Um, you know, we can go into detail on uh, many of them, but as, and, and a lot of them are fairly obvious, but we'll review. So uh, number one, smoking is a you know, very bad. I don't really have, to, that's not right. going to come as a surprise to anybody <laughs> listening to this, but smoking obviously is bad for the heart, bad for, uh, bad for the body. So for smokers, you know, cutting back on smoking, um, lifestyle plays a role. So, um, if you're somebody who leads a sedentary lifestyle, building physical fitness in is paramount. Um, you know, that's something we can work on to improve, uh, you know, improve outcomes. Um, and then other, you know, comorbidities, things like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, we can work to optimize those conditions. So patients who may have risk factors for coronary disease, you know, if they have high blood pressure, we can work to optimize their blood pressure. If they have hyperlipidemia, we can work to lower their lipids um, to get them more controlled. And same for diabetes, we can work, you know, to lower blood glucose and hemoglobin A1C levels. And doing all of that will lower, you know, long-term risk of, of coronary disease or for patients who have known coronary disease will work to imp improve outcomes. Um, let's see. So we touched on smoking. We talked about lifestyle. We talked about, you know, some of the diseases that we can uh, work on. Um, weight plays a role. So trying to be in, uh, you know, at a normal or healthy weight is important. And then diet plays a role as well. So there's a lot of modifiable risk factors, you know, that uh, we can work on. Um, unfortunately, you know, Genetics is, is yeah, something we can't exactly. Change. Good point. Now, if the incidence increases after the age of 65, is it still worth modifying at, say, 60 or 62 or 3 or 65? You know, is it still worth? Is it going to make a difference? Good to know. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. So for our patients who are at the highest risk, those who you know, we're working more on secondary prevention for, so a patient who may have already had a, had a heart attack, um, who has known coronary artery disease, those are the patients that need to be, you know, paid the closest attention to. And we don't raise the white flag and say we're giving up here. Those are the patients that need strict you know, control of their lipids, strict control of their blood glucose. They need strict control of their hypertension. They need to, you know, for patients who are post-MI, enroll in, um, you know, cardiac rehab, work to, you know, become more active. Those are, you know, the, we can definitely improve outcomes um, regardless of age, actually, and regardless of what, you know, how far along people are in their disease okay. process. Good to know as well. Excellent. Now, let's talk about prevalence. Where do we stand 
as women in uh, heart with heart disease being a cause of death? Sure. So, um, interestingly uh, and unfortunately, uh, the number one cause of death in this country uh, for both men and wow. women is cardiovascular disease. And so that's uh, pretty is. staggering. Um, and actually, a lot of um, women, um, you know, don't even uh, men and women don't don't realize that. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to say that out loud and, and acknowledge that coronary disease is the number one killer of, of men and women in the United okay. States. Um, for women in particular, um, the numbers vary on a population level, but in general, at least one in five women uh, will die from coronary artery disease. Wow. And I've seen you know, statistics that suggest even one in four or as high as one in wow. three uh, will die of coronary artery disease. And so um, it, it, it is really staggering uh, the burden of cardiovascular disease in this country. And so it's something that we need to acknowledge and work to educate our patients on um, as providers, you know, to make sure that everybody understands, you know, how important it is. Okay. I'm going to throw this question at you as a clinician, as, as a nurse, and, and obviously that's who's listening to our podcast. Oftentimes we get the response when we do uh, bedside teaching about coronary artery disease and the risks and changing their lifestyle. Inevitably, someone will say, well, I had an uncle who jogged two miles a day and did everything right and dropped dead at 70. So what difference does it make? What's a good response? for someone like that? Is that more of a genetic, you can go the genetic route or? It's tough to say. I mean, you know, unfortunately some people do all the right things and have a bad outcome. Uh, we've all seen that, um, you know, and sometimes we don't know, you know, the exact cause of someone's, um, you know, uh, demise, but, um, you know, like I said before, that doesn't mean we give up on kind of working on all these things. I think it would be the wrong thing, you know, to um, suggest that, you know, we, we know that we have good, very solid evidence base for all the things that we do in cardiology to know that uh, there are benefits to, you know, all the treatments that we provide our patients. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, people that do all the right things, you know, do have heart attacks. And um, some of that is not, you know, completely understood. But um, we do the best we can to optimize our patients. And, uh, you know, the hope is that in optimizing them, that we lower the risk, you know, the risk, you know, for anybody is never right. zero things happen. Um, but, uh, you know, we would like to lower those risks right. as much as possible. I guess possible. we can always fall back on the evidence and research. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about diagnosis. What's the best practice when it comes to women? Um, starting with, say, a stable patient comes in with chest pain? Sure. So, first of all, it's very important that, um, you know, women and men, uh, you know, establish with good good providers. Uh, they need to, you know, especially when they're having symptoms, be evaluated, um, particularly when they're having symptoms like chest pain. But also, you know, as we discussed, some patients have atypical symptoms. So, if something's not right, you need to be evaluated. And that's really the starting point. You know, we like to, of course, focus on prevention. But if you're, if you're, uh, you know, not feeling well, we need to, you know, to address that. Uh, but for a stable patient in general, who may, you know, be having symptoms, a lot of the initial management is done with things like getting a set of vitals in in uh, the clinic, doing a physical exam, getting an EKG. Those are really all the ways we kind of start to go about working up coronary artery disease for patients who. 
may have some risk factors. And if they are having symptoms in particular, um, that may be an indication to proceed with a stress test. And so oftentimes for those stable patients, we'll proceed with things like stress testing. That may be an exercise stress test, uh, you know, by exercising on a treadmill. For patients who can't exercise, they, it may involve a pharmacologic stress test uh, where, you know, we give uh, medication um, to accomplish, uh, you know, an ischemic workup. Um, and for other patients, actually, uh, especially nowadays, uh, you know, we're using um, CT actually uh, has been a good modality, CT coronary angiography to, to look in a non-invasive way at the coronary arteries. Um, or CT uh, calcium scans to assess, you know, the calcium burden in the arteries. Those are all ways for our stable patients that we can work them up. Taking a step back, other things like checking a lipid profile, checking an A1C, you know, for patients. Those are ways we can focus on, um, you know, diagnosis and prevention and all that. That's really key. The unstable patients, you know, when it gets to that point, it, diagnosis is a little bit trickier and unfortunately a little bit more risky. Uh, there's a little bit more risk involved because when you're presenting, you know, with things like an acute coronary syndrome, then, you know, we really oftentimes are committed to um, doing coronary angiography on those patients uh, through means, you know, oftentimes like a cardiac right. catheterization where we, which is the gold standard to kind of go in and uh, look at the coronary arteries and assess them. Um, we also, you know, um, can use non-invasive modalities in that setting as well. But most commonly, you know, especially for STEMI or NSTEMI, those patients are uh, in most cases going to go to the cath lab where we'll, you know, assess their coronary arteries. And oftentimes if there's a problem can then be addressed um, if, you know, they're okay. found to have a blockage. I want to go back just for a second to the genetic factor. And uh, I, I think I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it. I think it, you know, begs being asked, but one way or the other, it, when you're, when you have a genetic risk factor, as a woman, are you more susceptible if you're if you inherit that from your mother's side, or does it matter which side it comes from? It's a great question, actually. Um, in general, it doesn't okay. really matter. A lot of these conditions are inherited, irrespective of whether it's a mother or father's side. So I would say it's important that we identify right. a family history, um, but it's less so important for most cases, which relative it came from um but there are Good. exceptions i had the right answer in my head <laughs> always glad when that <laughs> happens now another question and and uh this may be something that you're aware of or not but i know that uh, i remember seeing a billboard one time that said um the the biggest killer for men is denial uh you know it's like a stereotypical in a way that they don't want to go to the doctor and they deny what's going on do you find the same thing with women or are they more um open to, hey, I'm not feeling well, I need to go now. I think, um, so I've seen patients kind of both, you know, hopefully patients when they don't feel well will present to their doctors and be evaluated appropriately. Some patients though do mistake. I've seen many times where patients, again, using the indigestion as an example, where they, you know, thought they had a stomach bug and then they present late and then they're found to have an MI um, and then that can subject when you present late in general, the outcomes are tend to be a little bit worse as opposed to being, uh, you know, addressed early on. Um, and so, um, the stereotypical, you know, I guess men being reluctant to seek care. I think we see it unfortunately with okay. both men and women, um, sometimes, 
Um, but it, the outcomes in general tend to be worse when symptoms are ignored. So the whole point is we need to be chatting with our patients about, you know, really, if something doesn't feel right, you know, right. being okay. evaluated. Right. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for episode one on heart disease in women, risk, prevalence, and diagnosis with our subject matter expert, Dr. Joshua Weinstock. Thank you for joining us. And we will be back with episode two, where we'll look more deeply at diagnosis and talking about how to reduce those risk factors and interventions. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.